Hello listeners, a friendly reminder that the companies and topics discussed on this podcast are general advice only. Please consult an advisor or accountant for any personal advice. Welcome back everyone. This is the Market Pulse podcast. Thank you very much for tuning in to this week's episode coming at you on Sunday, the 6th of September. My name is Dion Gribben and this is episode 27, the Challenger Approaching Edition. Now we're going to jump straight into talking about what the markets did this week. And of course, we will cover a few different topics in this episode. So we're going to talk about GDP. We're going to talk about sort of what happened to the buy now, pay later stocks during the week. Uh, And we're going to discuss a little bit about some of our milk formula stocks, so Bubs and A2 Milk specifically. But first, let's take a look at the markets and see how they did. So the ASX 200 was down 2.4%. The S&P 500 over in the US was actually pretty similar. It was down about 2.3% itself. The NASDAQ index, which is of course the tech heavy one, that was actually down more than that. It was down 3.3% because a lot of the sort of market drags over in the US were those big tech companies. So this week was a little, sort of talking about the domestic market here, it was a little up and down, but the the real kicker for us was Friday, and that's where the ASX opened and dropped very significantly, sort of following the US markets in the previous night and, and fell very hard on that Friday. So our local market here in Australia fell about 3% on the Friday alone, which is where the sort of bulk of that weekly decline I just mentioned was seen. But look, probably some of the big news, I guess the big headline news for the week was the fact that we are officially, Australia is officially in a recession sort of breaking that streak of, I think it was close to around 30 years without a recession, but breaking that streak of no recession uh, as of a couple months ago, technically, because the data that came out during the week is a little bit delayed. So let's break it down. Let's go over sort of some of the key figures here. GDP or gross domestic product as it stands for fell 7% for the June quarter. So that is April to June. And because the previous quarter, there was also a decline in GDP, that is where we are now technically in a recession. So two quarters of negative GDP equals a recession according to the textbooks and all that stuff, whatever. But you know, what I said, this data is a little delayed. So we're already sort of well into the third quarter of this calendar year. Now, um, according to Bloomberg, this, this fall was actually bigger than the sort of consensus economist forecast, which was more around the 6% mark as opposed to seven. So that probably tripped up people a little bit more than they were expecting. Now, hopefully you sort of remember from a little a little while ago, we spoke about in a different episode what exactly it is that contributes to GDP. So those are things like household, uh, consumer spending, government spending, private spending, so like businesses spending or investing. And then there's this term called net exports. That's all our exports minus the imports to get a, sort of a net export figure. So looking deeper into some of the sort of data behind this, and again, just referring to a Bloomberg article here from the 2nd of September, you had household spending, which accounts for roughly 56% of the entire Australian economy, just for context, that slumped 12.1%. And that was actually the cause of subtracting 6.7 percentage points of the GDP alone. So that's, so yeah, a big, that is a big part of the overall GDP decline picture. It's actually the biggest quarterly fall ever recorded in our national accounts for that household spending. 
Now, if you break apart that household spending, so you look into sort of what makes that up, you can see some very obvious declines across certain industries that is not going to surprise anyone. So you've got about a 56% fall in consumption towards hotels, cafes, restaurants, 85% towards a decline, sorry, in transport services. But there were some rises. So some of the rises was uh, you had a 13% increase in alcoholic beverages spending and 9.5% in what they call furnishings and household equipment. So I'll just quickly first touch on that last one. So that's the furnishings and household equipment. I mean, there's your kind of direct tie-in with some of the big growth you've seen in certain stocks in the ASX that we've mentioned in the past episodes. So, you know, think about the Temples and Webster's, the online homeware, you know, furniture provider. Think about Kogan, think about JB Hi-Fi. A lot of people sort of added to their house as you know some for some reasons it was it was just purely because they needed to work from home so they needed to buy you know maybe a new desk and chair and some extra monitors and all that kind of stuff some people actually did a lot of refurbishment around their house so that's why you saw some sort of good results from companies say like a bunnings the alcoholic beverage point can also be tied back to some of the recent annual reporting from companies you know i was just looking through the woolworths annual report last night classic Saturday night activity. Page 32, you can see that the trading performance overview for Endeavor Group. So Endeavor Group is just the umbrella that is basically BWS and Dan Murphy's. Just taking this directly from the annual report. So they've got Endeavor Drinks total sales increased 9.9% normalized to $9.3 billion for the financial year with comparable sales increasing 7.9%. In Q4 alone, so this is just in quarter four of the financial year, total sales grew at 23.2% on a normalized basis with higher in-home consumption due to government restrictions significantly limiting on-premise consumption, of course, being the bars sort of being closed there. So, And I know there's a lot of commentary in the news right now sort of expressing some concern about those sort of ABS stats showing increase in alcohol purchasing I guess the concern being whether this is tied to poor economic conditions and then sort of poor economic conditions leading to excessive drinking, diseases or deaths of despair increasing. Yeah, I'm probably not the most sort of educated person to be commenting on whether this current tick up in that alcohol spending can be traced to an increase in, say, alcohol abuse or whether that increase in alcohol spending is a reflection of closure of sort of establishments that normally would be open, but they're closed during a lockdown period. Of course, it might be a little bit of both, but the stats definitely show a very meaningful increase in household consumption on those products. Another quite interesting part of the data, which does tie back to households cutting back on spending, is the household savings ratio, which sort of tracks how much households are packing away for a rainy day. And now the household savings rate soared to 19.8%, which is Basically, as high as it's ever been since it says 1974, according to the ABS. 1974 being a time when there was another big global recession because that was kind of fueled from the oil crisis at the time. Now, of course, as you can imagine, saving or sort of being a bit more conservative with your money tends to sort of be increasing during a downturn. It's something in Australia, just regarding this sort of savings ratio, it's something in Australia that has been on the decline for quite a while. So you look back and we did see a tick up in the savings ratio uh, during and after the GFC, but sort of from 2011, that started to go down and down and down and down. Australians saving a lot less, 
likely sort of correlated with the property market booming as Australians look to sort of go into and buy property and pay off their mortgages as opposed to, say, maybe saving that money. Interestingly, the ABS notes that if you exclude COVID-19 related government support payments, the household savings ratio, instead of being 19.8%, would have been about 4.6%, assuming sort of everything else stayed the same. So a lot of that there is also from government support payments. I mean, as for what happens next, I don't think anyone is really expecting the next quarter to be much better. I had a read over the Reserve Bank's August statement on monetary outlook. They kind of always provide a bit of an economic outlook of what they've, and they kind of had to sort of revisit this given the lockdown in Victoria, because I think they were a bit more positive back towards sort of May time on sort of where we're heading then, but they're not as optimistic now. So I'm going to take the, the following quote here from the actual Reserve Bank statement here. So further outbreaks of the virus and associated restrictions on activity are the key risks to the outlook. For example, the recent outbreak of the virus in Victoria and the associated introduction of restrictions on activity are likely to reduce national GDP growth in the September quarter by at least two percentage points relative to the situation if the outbreak had not occurred. Other considerations include you know, just how long uncertainty and sort of diminished confidence weigh on household spending and businesses hiring and investment plans. So that very last sentence that I said is kind of the, the RBA acknowledging that we could go back to sort of low to no cases, but the environment that we're in may still weigh on consumer confidence and spending. It can very much relate, uh, sort of weigh on business confidence, for example, a business that maybe they had plans to expand or hire another staff member, they might be a little bit spooked given 2020 and what it's been like. And they might be thinking, well, let's look at that in the following year or the year after instead. And so, or maybe look for, I get at least a bit more certainty in the equation before spending or investing a little bit further. So that's where we are right now. Still very, very much beholden to the sort of the virus trajectory and how that continues to play out nationally. And right now, those forecasts that I just read regarding the RBA, they're sort of based on Victoria continuing to recover and also like nothing sort of similar to what's happened there breaking out in other states. So I'm sure if suddenly New South Wales had a similar scenario and decided to lock down, it would very much change that sort of outlook very significantly from the RBA. Okay, let's move on to some more market related stuff. One of the big market moving news this week concerned the buy now pay later favorites on the ASX. It really wasn't news from them directly, so to speak. It was more news across the pond. PayPal on Monday in US time released to the New York Stock Exchange and said that they were going to be offering a pay in for installments option through the actual PayPal platform. So they are entering the game. And this is this is kind of tied back to probably one of the bigger narratives around this sector, apart from say general regulation from say a government or credit bodies that could sort of affect their business model and growth. The other big risk you hear about when it comes to buy now, pay later is, you know, what if the big boys get into the game as well? And so if you've got too big competition there, and when I say big boys, I mean things like banks, I mean payment platforms like a MasterCard and Visa and of course sort of big payment system providers such as a PayPal. I actually remember having this conversation several years back with former colleagues and also speaking to a few advisors. The big talking point being risk of competition from something like a PayPal because a company like PayPal also have the pockets to sort of spend big on launching a product like this. 
generate a lot of noise through marketing, have a much bigger existing customer base. So might make it a bit easier for them to enter the game. But I think the other way to sort of take the news is you're also starting to see this as solidifying some legitimacy on the sector itself. And this was something I was thinking about when CBA took a stake in the Swedish buy now pay later service Klarna. So CBA has invested pretty heavily into this platform. It's integrated into their banking app now. But the point I'm trying to sort of get out there with that one, if CBA, which is the biggest retail bank in the country, is thinking about buy now pay later, they are certainly sort of thinking that it's either, I guess it's a threat to the more traditional credit card products that the bank would sell, but they also see it as an opportunity to provide a service that their customers might be wanting or increasingly wanting that they don't currently offer. And especially as a sort of those trends where people move away from traditional credit products. And the same can be said for PayPal, right? So either PayPal sees this as a threat or they just want in on the action so they can capitalize on that sort of shifting consumer trends. Now, as far as I've read on the actual PayPal announcement, the pay in for option will appear as a payment method when you're on the website and selecting PayPal to use as, a, as your payment method. Of course, you could just immediately debit the full amount, but there'll be this option there to pay in four installments across a six week period. But boy, did it spook the ASX. Well, not the whole ASX, but <laughs> really just the buy now, pay later sector reacting very poorly to the news. I mean, as one can imagine, but it was kind of very steep falls across the sector, depending on who you were. Afterpay was down around 12% for the week, which was not, not as bad considering. Split it was down 17.5%. Kind of gets worse from here. Zip down 24%. Sezzle much, much worse, down 33% for the week alone. But kind of one of the biggest news regarding this sector or this part of the market, which kind of flew under the radar because of all the news around PayPal, because that was kind of what everyone was talking about. But there was a Senate inquiry report that was released on Wednesday regarding sort of regulation around the buy now, pay laters. And this is, a, this is apparently an interim report, so it's somewhat still ongoing, but the writing and the commentary appears to very much favour the idea of allowing these companies to self-regulate. And I'm just going to take the next bit from a Business Insider article on September 3rd by Jack Derwin, so on Wednesday evening, the Senate inquiry into fintech appeared to side with them as it handed down its early findings. This is them quoting the Senate inquiry now. So because innovation like buy now, pay later often occurs on the fringes of regulation, it is inappropriate to force each innovation into a one-size-fits-all approach, the interim report concluded. Industry self-regulation provides an initial framework to protect innovation which can later be backed up by a policy statement or a form of co-regulation, so a cooperation between that industry and the government. So yes, I would say from the sounds of it, there doesn't appear to be any kind of imminent threat of regulation or industry overhaul from the Australian government on sort of the way these companies run their businesses, which should, I mean, at least that part this week gives you some good news for them, even though it's sort of clouded by the, the sort of worst news regarding PayPal, but some good news there also sort of hidden under that PayPal stuff for them and their shareholders as well. All right, let's move on. I'm going to touch on some of our milk stocks or, or our baby formula stocks in the ASX. And I really didn't get around to sort of discussing either A2 milk or bubs during reporting season. I, I did have a preliminary glance where I, I did notice that A2M had delivered some really strong growth. But I just kind of caught up on some info during the week regarding bubs as they did do a capital raising 
and they're currently offering a share purchase plan for shareholders. So we'll, we'll start with Bubs. And I, as I said, they've completed so an institutional level capital raising, uh, $28.3 million for $0.80 cents a share. And they also offered a share purchase plan for retail shareholders to raise a further $10 million. The good thing being at the same price that the institutional shareholders got, so the $0.80 cents there. And that capital raise for Bubs is actually to fund two things. So the first is to sort of buy a stake in a manufacturing facility that's actually located on mainland China where they can produce their product, but sort of directly in their country, in China itself and and market it as a, this is a made from Bubs product. So this is still the real deal. And the second reason was to, they've got a, a new sort of product line of vitamins that they're going to be pushing soon. I think that's also what they're going to be sort of doing and why they signed Jennifer Hawkins as a brand ambassador, but that's going to be rolled out in the next couple of months. So it's kind of some some extra capital there to fuel those activities. Now, as I mentioned, both companies have actually released financial year results, well, along with heaps of companies in the market, but both of them have released their full financial year results recently. And although different companies in terms of the product, I mean, A2 Milk, probably a little bit more familiar to listeners, so because they have a, quite a popular liquid milk brand that's you know in the cold section of the supermarkets, so probably a little bit more recognisable on that front. But the but the biggest piece of cake in their product line is still the actual infant formula, and that's their A2 milk infant formula. And Bubs is slightly different, so their milk formula is actually sourced from goats, so their infant formula is a goat milk formula. But both of these companies are beneficiaries of Chinese shoppers, which is a similar pattern we have seen in other Australian produce companies on the ASX. So sort of some of the companies that are in the wine business or vitamin business. This is a segment for both A2 Milk and Bubs that is growing very quickly or has been growing over the last few years. Their Chinese sales continue to go up and they are spending quite a lot on marketing to sort of build that brand awareness because um, I need that to sort of compete with other brands and especially say domestic competition that's in China itself. But also both companies are beneficiaries of what is called a Daigo or the Daigo trade, which is a Chinese term and effectively refers to someone who is a surrogate shopper. And these are people that are, I guess, buying their products locally, say in Australia, and sending them back to Asia. And so, and they're sending them back to buyers who are willing to pay a little bit extra premium for these products. The Daigo making a little bit of an extra clip on the difference between the price they bought it here and so they're selling it. But both of companies, so both A2 Milk and Bubs, are actually reporting that that retail Daigo trade has suffered. As you can rightly imagine, you can't exactly rely on the retail trade there when borders are closed. Travel is extremely restricted, impacting you know not only tourists, but also, say, international students who might be acting as Daigos. But there's another level to this, and that's the corporate Daigo. So they are not, say, just some student who's making an extra buck on selling like a slab of... Do you, I don't know if you call... I don't even know if you call a pack of infant formula, a slab, <laughs> it sounds a bit crude, but whatever they call, let's call them a slab. But but they, our corporate Daigo is a little bit more sophisticated in their setup. So that's actually like a proper business that's running to sort of sell these prop, uh, products back into Asia. And you saw, so I think it was in August, the A2M CEO was saying that their company has shifted from relying on the retail Daigos during this time incorporating more of a relationship with the corporate ones 
And and this is a little bit back now when COVID actually sort of just hit. But I remember it was so it was in the Sydney Morning Herald where they had an interview with Christy Carr, who is the CEO of Bubs, saying that they've actually seen a, quite a flurry of activity from the corporate diagos who are looking to uh, up their game a little bit, considering that the sort of retail ones are going to be falling off the board a little bit. The issue, though, on one hand, is these companies have in some ways benefited from, say, the panic buying that went on during that period of, of our history during <laughs> the start of 2020. But say for the corporate diagos and as sophisticated as their business might be in terms of actually getting supply, sending it back into Asia, it's not back into Asia, sorry, sending it into Asia, but they still have to physically you know, mail that product over there and the sort of world has been through a bit of a nightmare of logistical issues this year in terms of supply chains and that's kind of impacted their ability to sort of move quickly and smoothly. In terms of where I sit on these companies, I actually like both these companies, general advice, and I think the I think the runway is still very strong for further growth for both of them and their guidance uh, from in their report seems to indicate that. I think I'd, I guess we're going to put it on record and we'll see how, what happens, but I think I'd probably look at Bubs if I was looking at one. I, I actually find their product really interesting. They're a growing brand. They still probably, they still need to sort of keep pushing on that marketing front to sort of build that brand awareness, which is something they can certainly do and it's something that looks like they are doing. I mean, it's not without risks by any means, when, especially when you're talking about growing trade uh, into China. And I was reading a different interview with Christy Carr of Bubs again, but this is from an August article on Inside FMCG by Michael, Michael Arnold. So she was speaking specifically about consumer trends here. So she said that, you know, as we've witnessed in our home market in Australia, there is a growing consumer sentiment in China towards pride in purchasing domestically produced products with sort of a local relevance. And I guess that's where some of their logic is in their stake in that Chinese manufacturing facility because it's something they, they can make locally in China but and market it locally, but say, hey, this is still the sort of great brand that you already know is high quality, but it's actually made here locally, which might help a little bit towards that shifting consumer sentiment. But I, I just for full disclosure, I don't actually own any of them. So please do your own research, of course, before <laughs> investing. Um, but I don't mind both these companies. And I think, yeah, like I said, the, the, the runway is still very long and very strong uh, for both A2 Milk and Bubs. But we will see where that goes, I guess. I could be wrong. Like, you know, I've, I could probably do a whole episode on all the investing decisions I've made that turned out to be incorrect. Uh, but they all, you like to sort of see them as, as learning situations. Although maybe sometimes I don't learn. I just double down on what I'm doing is incorrect. But maybe I could do a whole episode on that one day. Let me know if you want to hear that. Thank you for tuning in this week. This has been episode 27 of the Market Pulse podcast. If you do have any listener questions or topics you'd like to be explored, please shoot them through to marketpulsepodcast at gmail.com. Hope you're having a great weekend or week whenever you're listening to this. My name is Dion Gruben. Cheers. Cheers.